This is The Think Tank with Dr. Mike O'Neill talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. The Think Tank. Okay, this is becoming an annual tradition here. Uh, as tax day approaches, or at least as April 15 approaches, uh, most of the last several years we've done a, sh- a show on taxes, figuring that this is the time when taxes are most interesting. The deadline by the IRS be- due to COVID has been extended by about a month, but uh, uh, we're still running the show uh, just prior to April 15th because uh, we assume that. Uh, well, it's traditional, and uh, it's uh, it's a time when people certainly start thinking about uh, taxes. Our guest is Bob Lord. He's a tax attorney, and he's a fellow with the Institute for Policy Studies. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thanks for having me. Well, um, you have written a, a paper for the Institute for Policy Studies uh, demonstrating the richest 0.01%. That, uh, when I say 0.01, that we get confused with decimals and uh, percentages, that means the richest one ten thousandth, if I've done my decimal points, one person in 10, one percent is 100, a tenth of a percent is a thousand, one tenth, so of 10,000 people, the richest of each 10,000, that's 33,000 people, they pay, this this is what staggered me, I know they always got a break, but they pay one sixth of what they used to pay only as recently as 1950 or 19, right. 1980, right? No, it's it's uh, it's about one fourth of what they paid in 1960s of what they paid in 1953. Right. The, the real the real drop started with the Reagan era in 1980. That's correct. Yeah. That's that's when it really that's when it accelerated. There was some movement in the 70s, but it, it picked up a lot uh, after Reagan uh, took office. But just to be clear, Mike, what we did here is looked at taxes paid total taxes and the, and and we were working off of the work done by uh, economists Emmanuel Says and Gabriel Zuckman at uh, University of California Berkeley they took all taxes paid corporate taxes sales tax estate tax income tax and attributed it to uh the various uh, segments of the population uh, by income and wealth, the top. If, if I 1%. could interrupt for one for one second, when you say attributed, that means, for example, if I own stock in IBM and IBM pays a certain taxes, I am proportionally assigned a, a proportionate piece to that based on my ownership. Is that correct? Right. The, the some of that and and some of that is actually uh, the corporate tax actually is borne by. IBM employees, not shareholders, and and, and they they devised a way to to basically take all these taxes and allocate them out to the various segments of the population: the top one percent, the top ten percent, the bottom fifty percent, and so forth. And so they had they 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 determined the overall tax rate as a percentage of income uh, over time for the various. Uh, for for the for the segments of the population, what we did is figured out the change in the tax burden as a percentage of wealth for the top 0.01 percent, and that your 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 numbers were right. It's approximately 
13,000 households out of 130 million households, one in 10,000. Uh-huh. And and we didn't we weren't able to to determine what the actual tax rate was as a percentage of their wealth in 1953 or 2018, but we were able to figure out what the relationship was. And the relationship was that the 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 rate of tax they pay as a percent of wealth is one sixth in 2018 what it was in in 1953. Okay, how'd that happen? Well, tax policy changed. Uh, tax policy changed because uh, America, uh, starting in the late 70s, but accelerating uh, in 1981 and going forward, uh, taxed work more and wealth less. What I mean by taxing wealth, uh, capital gains, the rate on capital gains, on dividends, on the estate tax, the tax that impacts uh, impacts wealth, uh, the taxes that impact wealth declined. The taxes that impact work actually picked up a little bit. Um, if you go back to the early 80s, there was a very substantial increase in employment taxes, and that's actually continued over time. Well, employment taxes are only paid by uh, paid on wages, and for the most part, the Social Security tax only on wages up to what's now about one hundred thirty-five or one hundred forty thousand dollars of of wages. You get over that, and, and, and zero thirty stops out. So I, I think that's one of the things that people confuse when they think about it. They only think about their the average person's sort of exposure to taxes is whatever's on your W-2 form, and that's money you worked for. Correct. And, and and the lower your overall wealth is, the higher the proportion of that wealth is reflected in that W-2 statement. That's right. You folks with little or no wealth uh, are still getting W-2s. And they're still paying. They're still paying tax on that on those wages. And in fact, as far as Social Security taxes are concerned, it's first dollar. There's no exemptions. There's nothing. And that's right. And it's and 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 the Social Security tax, Mike, is a regressive tax. Uh, if if you make thirty thousand dollars in wages every year, you're paying a, a much higher percentage in Social Security tax than a guy who's getting paid a million dollars a year. Now, uh, the, the defense that people would argue against that is the Social Security payout is very progressive. The lower your wages, the higher a percent of those taxes come back to you as an ultimate payment. Uh, uh, that's, that's true. And it's, the other defense is, is that it's, uh, it's basically old age insurance. Um, and and you're only insuring up to a certain amount. Uh, you know, if, if, if you, the, the the guy knocking down two million dollars a year for say his whole career is not going to collect Social Security based on that. He's going to collect Social Security based on you know a hundred thousand a year, and and the actual payout will be more like thirty thousand a year. So um, we'll, be, we'll be back with Bob Lord picking up this discussion of taxes and income when we return in just a moment.
The Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're going to we're talking right now with Bob Lord, tax attorney and fellow at, at the Institute for Policy Studies about taxes. And I want to tee this this part of the discussion up based on uh, my own personal uh, experiences. And that uh, that is as a I am the mythical job creator. I've run a company for 40 years over that period, apply, uh, have hired and employed over a thousand people, not all at the same time. but. I hear these arguments. Oh, we don't want to tax the job creators, and uh, and and I absolutely think that that argument is a hundred percent backwards. And let me explain to you why. If my company takes in a million dollars in revenue, I don't pay taxes on that. I pay taxes on what's left over after I pay everybody and my other expenses. So if I take in a million dollars and I pay out $900,000 in wages to people, I pay taxes on the 100,000 that's left. And the myth is if we tax the job creators, meaning me, that I'm gonna somehow, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna somehow be inhibited from expending funds, but the fact is the tax on the $900,000 that I spent hiring people is now and always will be zero. In other words, there's no, they're only taxing the money that I keep for myself and don't spend hiring people. In fact, even Eisenhower argued, and I don't argue for a return to this, but he argued in the 1950s that the then 91% uh, top tax rate was a wonderful thing because companies that had money would be incentivized to uh, hire more people, because after all, they only got to keep 9% of their profits above a certain level. Now, at, at a personal level, I would object to that, not as a job creation, probably is true for job creation, but I would object to that on, on a, a basis of morality, that it's, that it's wrong to keep 90, to tax 90% of what somebody earns. But, uh, but the argument that taxing employers uh, based on, uh, well, the, the, the argument essentially is that the tax is already zero on money they're spending, that they're, we're not taxing that. And, and higher, if, if higher tax rates have any impact whatsoever, they incentivize you to hire, hire more people and thereby reduce your tax burden. Your Mike, I, I, look, you've got that right. Uh, and it's, it's mystified me how that red herring never is called out. Uh, yeah, let me put it another way, because I've always had the same thought. If I'm in business, my goal is to maximize the bottom line income, the after-tax income. But the way I do that is by, it, with, with respect to employment, is I'm looking to maximize the top line income. Because like you said, the wages that I pay are deducted from my top line income before and, I and pay. They, and they are not taxed. That, that's taxed at zero. Yeah. And so my decision is I'm, if, if, if bringing this employee on will bring in more revenue than I will pay out in wages, I'm going to bring the employee on. And it doesn't matter what the tax rate is 
on what's left after I pay those wages, with the possible exception of a 100% tax rate. But you say, why should I? Why should I lift a finger? And and maybe even at 90%. I mean, at some point you say, you know, I'm getting 10 cents on the dollar. You know, it's well, not the, worth the effort. The the 90% rate didn't apply to corporate tax. Corporate right, right. It applied to individuals. And it only applied to individuals at the very, very top. It was, I think, at at the at four hundred thousand dollars and up back then, which is the equivalent like of millions, three million dollars of yeah. income now. And they uh, had a lot more tax shelters, and, and it was loopholes beyond belief. Exactly, there was much more sheltering back then. So, um, really, a miss. I, I mean, I, I cringe every time I hear that because I say we're not taxing. Uh, we said we don't want to tax job creators, the persons. Now, we do want to tax or we want to lower the cost of maybe of job creation, but the cost of job creation already has a 0% tax associated with it. By the way, I, oh, this is the point I was going to make. I've talked to a lot of business owners, and I have yet to find a single one who said that any, exactly as you put it, anybody who has ever made a decision about hiring or not hiring based on the marginal tax rate. It's exactly the way you put it. If I can hire another person, and by doing that, I can expand my business, I'm gonna do it, no matter what the tax rate is, high, low, or medium. And if it's not gonna bring in additional revenue, then I'm not gonna do it. And companies are not immoral, they're amoral. They're, they're about the production of profit. And they are acting in a way to maximize profit. I think the thing that's different that that, uh, that you sometimes see that argument, oh, if the return isn't great enough, I'm not going to invest my money. And that's baloney because you got a m- bunch of money sitting in your, sitting in your mattress, you're going to put it somewhere. And, and you're going to put it somewhere to give you the greatest risk-adjusted return. Meaning, I mean, there may be some things that pay super high, but uh, are risky, I won't do that. But once I account for the risk, I'm going to try to get the greatest uh, rate of return. That's different from my labor. Whereas if you don't pay me enough, at some point, I'll just decide to sit home. But for my money, I always, you always want your money to be doing something for you. You're going to look for a place, a place to put that. We get right. just, in, a, in a nutshell, but, but you're right. It astounds me that those arguments work. And they work. And because they're always made by people who either don't understand the basic economics or they're or or they have a self-interest in it. Well, you know, Mike, my my Rick, we got about 10 seconds if you want to quick. Oh, let's catch it on the other side. Okay, we'll catch it on the other side. We'll be be back with Bob Lord, tax attorney and fellow of the Institute for Public uh, Policy Studies. We'll return in just a minute in the think tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com.
We are back with tax attorney and Institute for Policy Studies fellow, Bob Lord. Um, Briefly, we started this show with your observation that uh, not only have the ultra wealthy paying less than uh, as a percentage of their income than other groups, but shockingly, that's gone down by a factor of about six in the last 40, 50 years. So, So in other words, this was not always the case. Question for you, Bob, uh, how did they do that? Because if we look at nominal tax rates, they're still, they're still progressive. They still are, although not as much as they used to be. Right, they used they, to be they, 91, now they tap out at 37. It, it basically, the way it works is if you look at the, uh, the rates for the bottom 99% by income, uh, the rate structure is pretty much the same as it's always been. There's not as many brackets as there used to be, but the but the progression is pretty much the same. But the progression stops now once you get to the top one percent. You know, the, the lawyer knocking down half a million dollars a year is at the same marginal rate as the billionaire uh, with with a hundred million dollars a year of income. Uh, the, the, the progression just doesn't go into the top 1% the way it used to. Um, you know, that, that 91% rate that you were talking about back in the Eisenhower administration, that didn't start at the top 1%. That started at like the t- top 0.01% or something. It was a very sliver piece of, of, of the population that was subject to that. Now that top 0.01% by income is paying, like I said, the the same top rate as the folks who are barely in the top 1%. Um, The point I'd make about that too, there we've slipped into, and the discussions like this always go that way. We've looked only at income tax, but uh, there are people who have massive, massive wealth who have managed uh, never to get any of that classified as income. I'll, I'll take a, just to take a, take a, a Zuckerberg or a Bezos mm-hmm. worth billions, and they never got that money on a, they started a company, and now the company is worth 75 billion, uh, 500 billion, ultra, ultra wealth, and there is no reason why they have had to pay any taxes on that at all, because they've not taken it out in salary. And in fact, if you're uh, Mark Zuckerberg, there's no reason you have to take any salary because any bank in the world would love to loan you enough money to live on, you know, 10 million, 20 million a year, whatever you take at, at a very low interest rate, because you've got, you know, billion, 100 billion in, in Facebook stock, you're a prime, you know, they're beating on your door for a loan. So, so if you take income, it's because you've chosen to. The big pile of money, the corpus, the wealth has never been, has never been touched. I guess that's the Mike, argument, you, is it not for the wealth tax? You, you must be following um, Professor Ed McCaffrey at uh, USC. Uh, he's, he's written a lot on this. Uh, and his, his thesis is, and I agree with it, is that we've moved from an income tax to a wage tax because the, the, the income from wealth, uh, it can still be sheltered and sheltered very well. And he has this, and he summarizes the strategy with three words, buy, borrow, die. 
buy the assets or in the case of a Zuckerberg sort of create the assets by by founding a, a, a hugely successful company, borrow against the asset during your lifetime, never sell it, and then die because the way our laws work now, when somebody dies, all that unrecognized gain on their assets is wiped out and, and no, no tax ever has to be paid. And let me dwell on that for a second because I think it's one of the major ways that, that the wealthy escape taxes. So you have this stock that started out with a value of zero or near zero. It's worth $50 billion. When that passes to your children, what they call the basis is stepped up to $50 billion. In other words, that, that, that increase in value from zero to 50 billion is forgotten. Your kids take it over and its presumed value is $50 billion. If they sell that at that moment, that they don't, it is not treated like they got a profit on it. That's, that's right. They could sell it the minute after I die for the 50 billion and pay no tax. And then we get into the, the estate tax on that. So that's $50 billion. Well, should, should there be an estate tax on the 50 billion? Well, on the surface, yes, but then go back to buy, borrow, die. What if I've borrowed 45 billion and spent it or done something with it, okay? Now my, my estate is only worth 5 billion. They still get that stepped up basis for the full 50 billion in the stock, but I'm help, but my estate is only paying estate tax on the five billion. So the effective rate of tax is you know like eight percent or something. It's it's horribly low. Uh, I, I, there's a different an, an additional um, way of uh, that uh, tax evasion that I saw put in in this last tax reform in the, the middle of the Trump year tax reform, and I was astounded when in a small way it even appeared on my own taxes. Let's say I own two pieces of real estate and one of them makes $10 million and the other loses $5 million. And I would presume, I presume going in, if that happens, that you would pay taxes on the $5 million net profit. But in fact, from the one that made profit, you get to deduct for no reason on earth that I can understand 20% of that. That's treated as an $8 million gain. You write up the 5 million against that. You've only got 3, 3 million in paper profit that you pay taxes in rather than the five that you actually earned. Well, Mike, I, I, I don't understand it that way. I think, I think you do have to net the uh, the losses out of the uh, of the income before you get that twenty percent deduction, but but focus just on the deduction itself, and it applies to anyone who's running some type of business, including like a real estate rental business, through uh, something other than a regular corporation. They're they're called pass through entities, and and they, they basically the Trump Tax Act in twenty seventeen defined this type of income as business income and you get to deduct 20% of it. So I'm a, say a successful doctor who's, and I've gone through, you know, medical school and a residency and everything like that. And I'm doing really well as a doc and I'm getting paid say a million dollars a year by the Mayo Clinic. You inherited some business from your parents 
and you're running that business and you're making a million dollars through that business, you're getting to deduct 20% of your million dollars. I've got to pay tax on my entire million dollars. Where is the equity in that? It's crazy. It, it was part, you know, I looked at that. This was part of the, the Trump tax. I said, who does that benefit? That benefits somebody who's in the real estate business who has a lot of different properties and each one is accounted for separately so that the gains and the losses don't exist. You don't count all, you count some of the some of the gains, but all of the losses. And I said, you know who that fits to a T? That fits Donald Trump. Well, it does, but there's another element of that. They also took the corporate tax rate way down to 21%. And From 37, I think it was. 35. Yeah. And, and, and so when you have this huge disparity between the corporate rate and the individual, if they didn't have that 20% deduction for so-called business income, you would have seen a ton of businesses that are conducted not in corporations convert to uh, corporate ownership. So they could drive, so they could take their business, put it into a corporation and only pay 21%. Now they'd have to pay a second tax when they took the money out. Which is big. But, Which but, is big. but, but, it, but the spread was so big without that 20% deduction that there was a need to do something to, to equalize and it. I assume that would be a gain, that would be a, something to gain if you intend to leave it in the corporation for an extended period of time. Right, if you're taking it out right away, not so much. You're, you're gonna lose because you're, you're getting double, you're getting taxed twice. Yeah. Okay, we'll return with Bob Lord talking about more ways to avoid taxes that you may not be able to take in the think tank in just a moment. Let me tell you The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're here with Bob Lord, tax attorney, IPS fellow, and we're talking about taxes and uh, essentially how the wealthy, the really ultra wealthy evade taxes. And I wanted to hone in on that aspect for just a moment. Um, and I don't want to draw a distinction between, you mentioned, say, a a successful attorney or doctor can earn two, three, four hundred thousand dollars in a year and accumulate a few million dollars, five, ten, maybe even twenty million over over an extended period of time. I would put that, however, but but the thing about that accumulation of what to most people would seem like a lot of money, if you've got the ten million or even maybe up to about twenty million, you probably got that through income and you probably paid taxes on that on the way. Whereas the ultra wealth, somebody starts a company that all of a sudden is worth hundreds of millions or billions, and they didn't take it as income, they just own the stock. That is wealth on which the owner has never paid any taxes. And as we pointed out, if they die, leave it to their kids, are not gonna pay any taxes over the long haul. It seems to me there is a distinction there. And, and therefore, if you're going to have an equitable sort of wealth tax, 
you have to exempt a pretty good size amount of I'd want to exempt that amount of money that in general will have been already taxed as income along the way. I, I think when we're talking about a wealth tax, it's really at the very, very top that everybody that the folks who are looking at that are proposing it. And really when when you think about it, Mike, someone who's in the strat at a stratospheric level of wealth, you know, a hundred million, a billion, or in the case of Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, uh, almost 200 billion. Any tax they pay functions as a tax on wealth. You know, you or I pay a sales tax when we buy a car and it impacts the type of car we're going to buy because we have to factor that in in our budget. When, we, when we're talking about income taxes, you or I, our income tax impacts decisions like how hard we work, how long we work before we retire, whether our spouse works, uh, where we live. But for the super wealthy, none of these taxes impact their decision making. They buy whatever they want. They work when they want and how hard they want. They live wherever they want to live. The only impact those taxes have is they put a little tiny dent in their wealth. And if we don't put enough of a dent in that wealth every year, more and more income and more and more wealth uh, concentrates at the top. And that's what we're seeing now. The, the share of, of our wealth held by billionaires has gone from under 1% back in 1982 to closing in on 4% now. Uh, the, 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 the top 0.01% that we're, we were talking about, their share of our wealth has quadrupled. So if you're going to be, if, if, the, if the only way the tax functions is as a tax on wealth, and we need to be taxing the wealth sufficiently to prevent, con prevent wealth from concentrating at the top, shouldn't we just go ahead and directly tax the wealth instead of stumbling around trying to get to the right to the appropriate amount of taxation by taxing everything other than wealth it it just doesn't make sense well, to it, not have that wealth tax i can't think of when there's real wealth like that uh, in the hundreds of millions or billions i don't see how else you tax it because because it's so much money that can't, people can't aren't using it to buy stuff so it's not going to get hit by a sales tax uh, they're not going to take it as salary because they don't need the salary. So it's not going to show up there. Uh, ultra wealth isn't reachable by any other kind of tax. I mean, you buy a huge house, the house will get taxed. But for people in the ultra wealth category, their, um, their house is not a significant uh, portion of their net worth, as it is with most of us. Most of us work for a living. Your house is the most valuable thing you'll ever own. And and by the way, we're paying a wealth tax on that. There's an annual property tax yeah. that's paid. It's at the state and local level, not the federal level. But yeah, you're right. The average person, their wealth is in their house, and they're paying a wealth tax on that. I, I never thought of it as a wealth tax, but it really is. A wealth tax, though, with a cap, <laughs> that, it, that it really hits, the, that wealth tax hits the upper middle class. Hits the upper middle class. And by the way, it hits them kind of hard because you own a house, say, that's worth um, half a million dollars, um, but you got a $400,000 mortgage on it. Your wealth is only 100000 but you're paying that property tax on the whole half a million. Mm -hmm. Of course, you're gaining that. You're, you're, it, it, it works out. It's a leveraged investment. So if the house goes up, you're gaining it on the whole 500000 too. But 
that, which is to say house, housing still can be a, a, a good deal, but it's, it doesn't. The point is, I guess it doesn't escape tax. Let me ask you this. Your, your focus seems to be on, well, this is uh, an inhibition against the accumulation of wealth, which you certainly can argue for. But to me, it's, it's, I, I, I'm more interested in another aspect, which is that all of this wealth that goes untaxed is basically imposing a burden on the rest of us, because government needs money to do certain things that we agree that we want. And if some people are largely escaping taxes, that means the rest of us are paying disproportionately more for that. How big a dent in our total tax collection could a wealth tax uh, take on? Oh, I think the numbers, there's a the recent proposal that um, Elizabeth Warren and Pramila Jayapal have out, which is to tax wealth between 50 million and a billion at 2%. Mm -hmm. And over and any wealth over a billion at 3% per year. Um, I, I think the I think the estimates are well into the hundreds of billions per year of additional tax revenue. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's, I must say, I, that's the highest numbers I've heard. Most of the wealth tax proposals I've seen have been in the one to two percent range. Right. Well, this this is the only one I know of that's actually been proposed as as an actual bill. In the hey, Bob, we we got a minute left. I want to give it to you. What what? Tell me as succinctly as you can. We're down to forty five seconds now. What changes would you propose in the taxing system? Um, first first change start enforcing the law. The IRS is just not funded enough to enforce the law. Second change, close the loopholes. Third, tax more at the top. And how would you tax more at the top? Wealth tax? Wealth tax or current taxation of gains where someone owns stock, hasn't sold it, but it's appreciated by a lot, tax the gain before it's sold. And, uh, and that's... Uh, 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 a fellow we both know, Ed Kleinbart, proposed the way to do that is to is that it's tricky to figure out exactly proposed imputing an annual gain of around six percent because the stock market average is about nine, and over the long haul, that will that will for assets do the that are same traded for the, for, yeah. for the assets that are traded, it's easy. If it's a yes, if it's, it's whatever. Stock, yeah. you can just call market one over the other. Okay, we we're run out of time, Bob Lord, uh, uh, tax man, and. Uh, uh, some stuff to think about as we all finish up our tax forms for the year. Thank you, Bob Lord. See you next week in the Think Tank.